All right, we are back. Let's take a brief detour out of the world of uh, nasty disease and nasty politics and see if we can't do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for anti-racist racism. After anti-racism guru Robin D'Angelo was reportedly paid $12,750 for a speech at the University of Wisconsin, 70% more than the $7,500 paid to her fellow keynote author Austin Channing Brown, a black woman. And it was surely a bad week last week for divine inspiration with the news that the mayor of Lincoln County, Tennessee, where COVID-19 is surging, said he is waiting for approval from the Holy Spirit before imposing a mask mandate. Mayor Bill Newman said the coronavirus is real, and I do believe masking helps prevent the spread of it, but that his prayers for guidance on face masks are as yet unanswered. Jeez, you hate to hear that. Although we often rely upon the Week magazine as one of our staples and our standards for most of the good, bad, and the ugly, here's an item that comes from NBC News. We would conclude that it was an ugly week last week for Hungary's ultra-conservative government because it turns out that a top-ranking official in that government has stepped down after being caught fleeing an alleged gay sex party. Joseph Zaire, I think is how it's pronounced, announced his resignation as a member of the European Parliament for Prime Minister Viktor Orban's Fidesz party last Sunday. The married official admitted to attending what he called a private party in Brussels on Friday night, despite the Belgian capital being under coronavirus lockdown. Now, according to NBC, at least 20 naked men, including several diplomats, were discovered at a gathering above a gay bar in central Brussels. The Belgian newspaper La Denier Huer described it as an orgy. Sayer, 59, was injured trying to jump from a first-floor window, according to the public prosecutor's office, but was apprehended by authorities who found narcotics in his backpack. Unable to produce identification, Sayer was escorted by police to his residence, where he presented a diplomatic passport that confirmed his identity. Sayer was arrested, but tried to claim European parliamentary immunity, police said, leading to involvement of Belgium's foreign ministry. Noted the Times of London, others arrested at that party included diplomats linked to the conservative European People's Party, of which Sayer was vice chair and, we kid you not, chief whip. Here's the part I like best. In a statement this week to the Hungarian press, Sayer apologized for violating social distancing regulations. (laughs) He said, I'm sorry that I have broken the rules of assembly. This was irresponsible. I will take the sanctions that come with it. Anyway, we have no idea what led to the raiding of that party. We presume it was due to the violation of the social distancing rules. Speaking of gay men in an unusual position, and how's that for a segue? We have Sacramento writer Jackson Griffith to thank for something that he posted on social media a while back. Griffith noted the passing of professional wrestler Pat Patterson. Now, if you grew up in the Bay Area, you, you might remember many years back the, <laughs> the notorious tag team of Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens. They were the local bad guys. I, I, I momentarily confused Patterson with Stevens. 
Ray Stevens, in fact, lived in Fremont, not, not, not far from me growing up. I was confused because I remember attending a party at Ray Stevens's house put on by his daughter. I have a vague recollection of Ray sort of hanging out in the background during one of those events. I, I assumed to make sure nothing got out of control. But frankly, I don't trust my memory on this one. But I did start noodling around to discover that, yes, indeed, Pat Patterson was a gay man. And it turns out was one of the most influential figures in wrestling. That would be professional wrestling, which has basically nothing to do with the actual sport of, of wrestling. I have to confess, I found my reading surprisingly entertaining, taking me back to the air, air, taking me back to the age when big time wrestling was operating out of the Cow Palace in the Bay Area. Ray Stevens, when he when he wasn't part of the tag team, would frequently wrestle the good guy. You know, they 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 take roles on the villain, the good guy. Apparently, the good guy is called the face or baby face. The popular local guy, the popular local wrestler. Pepper Gomez generally played the good guy to Ray Stevens' villain. The Wikipedia entry for Ray Stevens mentioned how at one point Pepper Gomez during a match grabbed the bell at ringside and apparently swung it into Ray Stevens' head, not realizing how heavy it was. Stevens was dropped to the canvas, and in this case, he wasn't faking it. He was genuinely hospitalized with a concussion, which uh, apparently had no lasting effects for him, fortunately. This did take me back to the the time of my youth when when big-time wrestling was on KTVU television in the Bay Area. And even as a child, I would watch it amazed that adults and other kids would actually believe it was real. It's not? (laughs) Well, I hate to break it to you. But I remember, as a young lad, laughing about how fake wrestling was. And really angering one of the kids in the neighborhood with this assertion. Oh, yeah, kid, he said. Oh, yeah, it's fake. There's blood all over the ring. But it's fake. I did make a subsequent inquiry about the blood all over the ring part and discovered that, well, that, that's, yes, that's an integral part of, of professional wrestling. I think it's called blading. You basically nick your skin so that you do bleed because, you know, the scalp is a great place, uh, or has a great blood supply and bleeds copiously, even with a minor injury. And, yeah. Yeah, it was part of the show. You get blood all over the ring. And I got to wondering, whatever happened to the kids that grew up believing that professional wrestling was real? I can only assume that they make up a great portion of the Trump base. That's just pure speculation on my part. But I have to admit, I do see parallels between people who are convinced that, you know, what you're seeing in the ring, the grunting, the shoving, the jumping off the turnbuckle... I forget whether it was Ray Stevens or Pat Patterson, but one of them had a patented move where they would come off the ring and put their knee into your neck. Which, you know, you have to be careful about how you do something like that. I mean, you know, you could actually hurt somebody if, if it was real. Kind of like a lot of these claims you make if you're president. You know, they, they could be worrisome things if they were real. Anyway, as I, I hope people will analyze how it is that, you know, Donald Trump uh, got 74 million votes. They'll, they'll take a look. They'll take a little detour into the, the area of... of Strange things people believe, like, you know, that professional wrestling is real. I mean, if you're a wrestling fan, it must, it must break your heart when, when, you know, when the good guy gets, you know, chloroformed by one of the villains, you know, the, that he's wrestling. My personal favorite was the eye lock, when one of the bad guys would more or less make his hand into an OK sign and then press that against the guy's eye socket, which apparently induced excruciating pain. It's funny too. Many many years ago, when we first started doing this program, one of the one of the jokes we threw out was that uh, we always thought politics 
was the same thing as professional wrestling. There was a lot of grunting and shoving going on for the benefit of the public, but in reality, the decisions were really being made in, in back rooms. When Jesse Ventura, a former professional wrestler, became the governor of Minnesota, we thought this was probably one of the signs that the end of civilization was near. But wouldn't you know it, it turned out Jesse Ventura was a very sharp guy. And by the accounts, as far as I know, was, was, was a pretty good governor. Malibu later got involved in a television program that dealt with conspiracy theories. Of course, we take a different view on conspiracy theories on this program, as do most outlets of the media, in that, you know, we recognize that some of them are real. Jesse Ventura said things like he knew Oswald couldn't have done the shooting because I qualified as a sharpshooter and I couldn't do it. We're willing to grant that he probably had a point. Which leads us to a special collector's item of Scientific American, which was sent to this program by, let's say, let's call it a contributor. The title is Truth Versus Lies. The subheadline is, it's never been more important to understand the science of misinformation and deception and how to know what's real. And while we would agree with the premise, we're rather disappointed, as we almost inevitably are, by the efforts of Scientific American. Been our opinion that most Scientific American articles are poorly written. An impression which, we're sad to note, seems confirmed by this special collector's edition of the magazine. Now, one of the articles, (laughs) just to give you an example, here's the title of one of the articles. Which experts should you listen to during the pandemic? Article by Nathan Ballantyne and David Dunning actually had the following subheadline. It should be a no-brainer. Your best bet is to follow those who have actual expertise. God, this just in. Scientific American conducts social-religious study on the pontiff and concludes that he is a Catholic. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a few little sentences or two in the article worthwhile, like coronavirus trespassers strike out alone on social media and in op-ed articles. They may crowd out real experts and science communicators trying to mitigate misinformation. One infectious disease epidemiologist recently complained of an epidemic of armchair epidemiology. In this case, they were referring to trespassers as people who believe their admittedly valuable home field skills carry over into other fields. I know they did not mention Scott Atlas. We do want to inject at this point with some happiness the fact that Stanford's Dr. Scott Atlas has resigned as Trump coronavirus advisor. And no, we don't think uh, that Trump was inspired by the Scientific American advice that your best bet is to follow those who have actual expertise. Articles about Atlas note that his 130-day role was set to expire this week. His resignation in Twitter did not describe any plans to return to his position as a senior fellow at Stanford University's conservative Hoover Institution. Article in the East Bay Times notes that if he returns to campus, Atlas will likely face a chilly reception. The university's faculty senate passed a resolution condemning his views, and leaders at Stanford University Medical School denounced Atlas for promoting what they called falsehoods and misrepresentations of science. Noting that a radiologist with no training in epidemiology or infectious disease, Atlas angered health experts while pushing a suite of controversial policy prescriptions. Anyway, Scott Atlas, we hope the screen door doesn't hit him on his way out. Anyway, there were a lot of articles in that Scientific American piece, and not all of them were worthless, although uh, a lot of it was pretty worthless. Well, we'll probably find a cause to quote from some of them, either today or in future shows. 
One interesting piece in The Economist, an issue a few weeks back, caught my eye. It noted that economists have had a rocky relationship with epidemiologists this year. Noted The Economist, for epidemiologists, 2020 has been a trial by fire. Economists should be able to relate. It was just over a decade ago that their own practices and forecasts were subjected to the harsh glare of the public eye in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. It notes that the relationship between the two disciplines has been a testy one. Now, this has been, you know, sort of a subplot to a lot of our discussions on this show in in 2020. Uh, Evidence was served up that, well, contentions were served up that um, the public is being hurt more by restrictions on activity, you know, not being able to shop, not being able to dine in restaurants, etc., than it was by the actual virus itself. A contention that we considered at every point of the way to be pretty much insane We've yet to see any economists factor in what, you know, deaths and hospitalizations do to the economy. I mean, I'm sure those papers are out there. In fact, I'm sure there's dozens of papers out there that, that, that chip away at this topic. But like I said, we haven't stumbled upon anything that was terribly convincing. I was sort of startled to read in the magazine that, uh, that economists took a great exception last March when researchers at Imperial College London used a model to calculate the potential death toll of the virus They assumed that people and governments took no measures to stop the spread and then concluded that perhaps 500,000 Britons and 2.2 Americans would die under under such circumstances. Now, that's roughly 10 times as many who have actually died so far. And the magazine notes that the numbers frightened governments into taking drastic steps to mitigate the spread of the virus, but drew intense criticism, much of it from economists. Detractors argued that the model's assumptions were unrealistic, which the magazine frankly noted was a strange stone for economists to be throwing. They went on to explain why this was only a model, and a model with certain constraints in it, like nobody does anything, which makes me circle back to that Scientific American cover, noting it's never been more important to understand the science of misinformation and deception and how to know what's real. We probably should start with economists. One of the articles in Scientific American is about misinformation and disinformation, and it's one of the better ones. But before we get into that, I want to segue into a piece sent around by a good friend of mine from the New York Times, a piece by David Brooks, arch-conservative opinion columnist, who I would note is generally full of it. But to quote from the piece, in a recent Monmouth University survey, 77% of Trump backers said Joe Biden had won the presidential election because of fraud. Many of these same people think climate change is not real. Many of these same people believe they don't need to listen to scientific experts on how to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Said Brooks, we live in a country in epistemologic crisis. And for those who never took a class in philosophy like myself, epistemology is defined as that branch of philosophy that investigates critically the nature, grounds, limits, criteria, or validity of human knowledge. Brooks is pointing out a crisis in which much of the Republican Party has become detached from reality. He said, moreover, this is not just an American problem. All around the world, rising right-wing populist parties are floating on oceans of misinformation and falsehood. What is going on? In his third paragraph, Brooks said, many people point to the internet, the way it funnels people into information silos, the way it abets the spread of misinformation. I mostly reject this view. Why would the internet have corrupted Republicans so much more than Democrats, the global right more than global left? He then goes on to give his explanation for why he thinks that is, which I think can safely be discounted. And of course, before he's done, he strays into the idea that, you know, people's deep psychological needs 
causes them to believe in conspiracy theories. You know, we're going to have to sick Jesse Ventura on this guy. But to take a look at why it is the right wing has been so influenced by the internet. And by the way, the idea that the internet is not really to blame for all the mischief that it's causing, to me, is the exact same argument as guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yes, it's the people that use the guns we have to worry about, but it is also the people who misuse the internet that we have to worry about. At this point, I want to cite another contributor to this program who chipped in a few weeks back to remind me of something I'd pretty much completely forgotten about. Although it did come back to me. My memory was refreshed at one point and, and did mostly come back to me. This concerns a time in the early aughts. I think it was about 2007, actually. I did, I did look up the actual date because it was available on the internet. When Louis Lapham came to town, he of Harper's Magazine, he gave a talk. I went up to him to try and enlist him for this program somewhat reluctantly because, to be honest, I wasn't sure what to do with a Lewis Lapham, and still still, I'm not sure what I would do with this distinguished editor. Frankly, I wasn't making a very good pitch for his appearance on the radio program when my colleague Dr. Gary Aguilar jumped in. Lapham was referring to a piece he'd written a few years earlier, and he, he momentarily stumbled on the title of it, which fortunately Gary had at his fingertips. The article was titled, Tentacles of Rage. And once, that, and once that was so identified, he then agreed to write out his phone number for future reference on for this program. I'm sad to say that I never did use that phone number because I found the prospect of trying to interview Lewis Lapham very daunting and still do. But you know, he's still around. He's still a hell of a guy and we may need to give that a rethink. But this article, Tentacles of Rage, is worth quoting from at least for several minutes. And yes, we do hope that David Brooks picks it up and reads it. To quote from Tentacles of Rage, which appeared in Harper's Magazine back in 2004, in company with nearly every other historian and political journalist east of the Mississippi in the summer of 1964, the late Richard Hofstadter saw the Republican Party's naming of Senator Barry Goldwater as its candidate in that year's presidential election as an event comparable to the arrival of the Mongol hordes at the gates of 13th century Vienna. The, quote, basic American consensus, unquote, at that time was firmly liberal in character and feeling, assured of a clear majority in both chambers of Congress, as well as a sympathetic audience in the print and broadcast press. The article quotes economist John Kenneth Galbraith saying in 1964, with regard to the designation liberal, almost everyone now so describes himself. And yet, noted Lapham, seemingly out of nowhere and suddenly at the rostrum of the San Francisco Cow Palace in a roar of triumphant applause, here was a cowboy-hatted herald of enlightened selfishness threatening to sack the federal city of good intentions, declaring the American government the enemy of the American people. Skipping ahead, Lapham notes the star-spangled oratory of Barry Goldwater didn't draw much of a crowd in the autumn campaign trail. The electorate in 1964 was interested in the threat of an apocalyptic future or the comforts of an imaginary past, and Goldwater's reactionary vision in the desert faded in the sunset of the November election, won by Lyndon Johnson with 61% of the popular vote. Noted Lapham, Goldwater may have been departed, but he was not disbanded. 
as the basic American consensus has shifted over the last 30 years from a liberal to conservative bias, so has the senator from Arizona come to be seen as a prophet in the Western wilderness, an apostle of the rich man's dream of heaven that placed Ronald Reagan in the White House in 1980. Said Laugham, about the workings of the right-wing propaganda mills in Washington and New York, I knew enough to know that the numbing of America's political senses didn't happen by mistake. But it wasn't until I met Rob Stein, formerly a senior advisor to the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, that I came to fully appreciate the nature and extent of the re-education program undertaken in the early 1970s by a cadre of ultra-conservative and self-mythologizing millionaires bent on rescuing the country from the hideous grasp of satanic liberalism. Noted Lapham to a small group of Democratic activists, Stein brought 38 charts diagramming the organizational structure of the Republican, quote, message machine, unquote, an octopus-like network of open and hidden microphones that he described as perhaps the most potent, independent, institutionalized apparatus ever assembled in a democracy to promote one belief system. Noted Lapham, it was an impressive presentation in large part because Stein didn't refer to anybody as a villain and never mentioned the word conspiracy. He said Stein didn't begrudge the manufacturers of corporate agitprop the successful distribution of their product in the national market for the portentous catchphrase and the camera-ready slogan. But writing in 2004, Lapham noted that the prolonged siege of words has proved so successful in its result that on nearly every question of foreign or domestic policy in this year's presidential campaign, the frame and terms of the debate might as well have been assembled in Taiwan by Chinese child labor working from patterns furnished by the authors of ExxonMobil's annual report. Anyway, it's a long article, and I don't have time to read all of it. I wish I did. Suffice it to say that Lapham documents who did what, who put the money up, the foundations that were formed, the press organs that were assembled to promote the viewpoint of America's millionaires and billionaires. Lapham notes near the end of the article that by the end of Reagan's second term, the propaganda mills were spending $100 million a year on the manufacture and sale of their product, invigorated by the sense that once again it was morning in America and redoubling their efforts to transform their large store of irritable mental gestures into brightly packaged policy objectives. Tort reform, school vouchers, less government, lower taxes, elimination of labor unions, bigger military budgets, higher interest rates, reduced environmental regulation, privatization of Social Security, downsized Medicaid and Medicare, more prisons, better surveillance, stricter law enforcement, which I think takes us up to Donald Trump. But since Lewis Lapham wrote this article, the Internet and social media have become major forces in American life. And of course, the means by which these big tech corporations monetize their efforts, which consists of learning everything they can about you and me, the users of their product, so they can then sell that information to those who would influence us, those who would sell us things, and those who would like us to vote a certain way. Well, we think that's the real explanation for why it is the right wing has been mobilized above and beyond the left. You know, if you're a Mark Zuckerberg or a Wall Street banker and you want to see your interests protected in the future, well, it doesn't look as though you can necessarily count on the support of progressives and liberals. But if you want to win some elections, you're going to have to fashion some, side of, some sort of coalition between the moneyed interests, which admittedly are a small percentage of the population, and 
the larger masses of evangelists, of evangelical Christians, and, you know, Joe Sixpack. You need to utilize things like QAnon and the memes that appear on Facebook to your ends. And by God, they sure do a good job of it. We vowed on this program many months ago to find a way to to disengage from social media, and we've been so far, at least I have been so far, uh, pretty much a miserable failure. And here's how disturbed I am by my own failings in this area. A week or two ago, I was in Fry's, which used to be a giant emporium of electronic goods and now looks like a, a large department store in the old Soviet Union. Lots of aisles, lots of shelves, not a lot of product. I snapped up a CD player because I snapped up a DVD player, one of those portable jobs you see people taking on airplanes because I thought I could use it when visiting my cabin. On the way over to the coast, I grabbed a bunch of DVDs off the shelf, which I thought I might want to watch. One of these was an old James Bond movie I'd never gotten around to watching, The Man with the Golden Gun. That was one of the ones with Roger Moore as Bond. I set up the machine over at the beach, and that was the movie I chose to put into the machine to test it. My companion returned from a walk on the beach to ask what I was up to. I pointed out that I was testing the equipment, and I don't remember whether I or or she said, oh, the man with the golden gun, but we did verbalize that. An hour later, while sitting on the couch, I was looking at my cell phone, looking at the feed that Google thoughtfully provides for us on your Android phone, and scrolled down to note that one of the entries I was being served up was an article about the making of the movie The Man with the Golden Gun. It apparently had been posted on the internet something like 12 or 13 hours previously, but Google saw it and thought I should be, would probably be interested in it. Now, assuming this is not a remarkable coincidence, and I do not believe in this particular coincidence theory, it means that my phone was listening to what I said and processed that information to decide what it would best serve me, which for my money is just a little too damned invasive. We'll have more to say about that in the future, but it looks as though we're pretty much out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who does like to refer to himself as the man with the golden gun, if you know what I mean. I'm your host, Ian Fleming, and we're looking forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.